0: Good morning, everyone, and happy Mother's Day. Well, hopefully not too much of a hard right turn, but we've got to talk about Emperor Julian this morning. (laughs) If you were to summarize the short reign of Emperor Julian, you could put it in four words, make Rome pagan again. You see, Emperor Julian uh, came to reign in the Roman Empire uh, just a few decades after his uncle, Constantine. Constantine uh, came into power as emperor, and, and during his time, he converted to Christianity and then proceeded to make uh, Christianity the official religion of Rome. Now, whether or not that was a good thing or a bad thing, that is up for, an, uh, that is up for debate. That's a whole other teaching. But Constantine comes in, makes Christianity the, uh, the civil religion of Rome. And a couple of decades later, his little nephew, Julian, comes in, known by historians as Julian the Apostate. Uh, though raised within a Christian family, he rejects it right at the time that he comes to power and over the course of his reign, his attempt was to reinstate the true, in his eyes, religion of Rome. The religion, the worship, the, 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 the honoring of the gods of the Roman pantheon. And so he came in and he started working together, building up a priesthood that was kind of, uh, you know, pictured off of Christianity's church movement. Uh, He started uh, developing all that he could to try to get the Roman religion going again, to make Rome pagan again. Over his time, Julian came across one major obstacle in his work of trying to make Rome pagan again, one big thing that he could not figure out what to do. In a letter from uh, Emperor Julian to the pagan high priest, Arsatius, he wrote this, and what a quote it is. He said, "'Let us consider that nothing has so much contributed to the progress of the superstition of Christians as their charity to strangers.' I think we ought to discharge this obligation ourselves, establish hospitals in every place. It is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans, that is his catchphrase for Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well, welcoming them into their agape, their love. We'll talk more about that in a moment. They attract all of the city. They attract them, all men. Seeing that our people lack aid from us, from the Roman Empire, so teach those of the Roman faith to contribute to public service of this sort, and of Roman villages to offer their first fruits to the gods, and accustom those who love the Roman religion to these good works by teaching them that this was our practice of old. That last line, teaching them that this was our practice of old, is straight propaganda. I'm sorry, Julian, but that, that this was not. The Roman faith was incapable of pushing charity, of, of, of compelling a people towards this sort of generosity. But him seeing how this Christian movement had grown realized if we're going to have any leg up on Christianity, we have got to step into some kind of generosity here. Because the Roman faith simply didn't produce care for the poor. See, charity in the Greco-Roman world was all about your reputation. You gave, yes, you contributed to public works. But in as much as you could put your name on it, or in as much as that person had, had either a close or higher reputation than yours so that you could boost yourself up, and who down, those needing the most charity, the most care, the most generosity, were the ones that couldn't offer anything to your reputation. And so they regularly were pushed to the sides. In contrast to the Roman world was the superstition, as Julian called them, of Christians, or as an earlier uh, writing, the letter of Diognetus, that referred to Christianity as this third race, as this new people that we talked about last week. In that letter of Diognetus, man, is it worth your time, although the name might sound a little uh, scary, was uh, the author goes through these peculiar paradoxes of the early Christian faith. You'll see it behind me, a couple little excerpts from it. This writing about Christians said, they have a common table but not a common bed. They are poor yet make money rich. They are in lack of all things yet abound in all. You see the paradoxes that the Christians were perceived as living within. But that first one is both paradox and satire. Because you see, they have a common table but not a common bed. The understanding in the Roman world that, that a common bed, an open bed was norm. A, a open a, a, a sexuality, a, open to any and all kind of possibilities, that was the norm for most Roman men. But having an open wallet and an open table, that was not presented. Here within Christianity, there's this stark difference, is they don't have an open bed. They, they have you know, monogamy or, or uh, chastity. They have this deep celibacy commitment. They've either got this thing going on, um, but then they also have a, a, a table that's open to everyone. So it's a reversal of the Roman ethic. Do You guys see that? Okay, cool. So this leads uh, historians then out of that letter of Diognetus to try to describe the early church, and they use this language of promiscuous generosity. I love it. If you're taking notes, you can write that down, promiscuous generosity. The early church, historians look back, and they find what we would call promiscuous, open to every and anyone that you would en- you know, encounter all, kind of all over the place, that they would say, that, man, that that was the defining characteristic of the early church's care their generosity. And so if you would turn or tap your way to 1 John chapter 3, today as we continue in our peculiar series where we've been looking to renew the church by retrieving the, the, the distinctions, the practices of the early church, today we're looking at the second of six distinctives. And the commitment to this, promiscuous generosity, a hospitality, a concern, a, a care for the poor and the marginalized, which the Roman Empire both, as we see here, found offensive and attractive at the same time. And so today, excuse me, we're going to be looking at three questions, very similar to what we saw last week. You're going to notice a, uh, a pattern that's going to you know, develop over the coming weeks. It's kind of just three questions to guide our time today. One, where did Christians get this distinctive practice from? Where did promiscuous generosity come from? Two, what kind of communities did it create? And three, how might we retrieve this kind of practice in our own city today? With that being said, would you join me in standing as we read from First John chapter three today? As I say each week, we stand as we read from the scriptures as a way of honoring God's word speaking to us But for me, it's always just this reminder of this is not a mental exercise of reading something. The the call here is for my whole life, my whole self. And so with that being said, let's read 1 John verses 3, 16 through 18. Uh, I'll pray for our time together and we'll get right into it. 1 John 3, 16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to love, uh, not just in talk, but in word and deed. God, would you shape us today by the generosity of you. God, that this would create a community on the west side that would be as countercultural to our city uh, as the early church was uh, to theirs. And we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, go ahead and be seated. Well, it's been said, you are what you eat. And if that is the case, then I am just a couple of bites away from becoming a fully functioning Panda Express. (laughs) Uh, Far more (laughs) common is a really bad joke, and I'm so glad that I got a laugh out of some of you guys for that. Uh, Far more central and an actual actual seriousness beyond what we eat is a similar statement. Uh, You are what you worship. You become what you behold. You are shaped by what is the center point of your life. What you orchestrate yourself around becomes the thing that slowly shapes you over time. And so the question is, a moment ago we talked about how the Roman faith didn't have any basis for charity, any compulsion for giving to the poor and caring for them, welcoming them in. Why not? You don't have to look much further than the gods of the Roman faith. If you spend time looking at the stories of the Roman gods, they're basically just really big humans with some superpowers. They are just as petty. They are just as selfish. Uh, Zeus, for all of his uh, you know, thunder applaud, uh, is, is based off the stories that we have about him, a rapist and a pedophile. Uh, the god Eros of, of love is also the same god of revenge. You see, the human nature of this, the human distinction, that most of the gods in their stories are selfish, they're self-seeking, they're petty. And so, whether it's the chicken or the egg, whether Rome made gods to look like them, or, or in turn, then the gods began to reshape people more in that. The, the idea was why, was, why for Julian, why could not he bring up a generosity within the Roman people? They, they simply didn't have something central that called for that. They didn't have gods that were shaping them in that kind of posture. Christians on the other hand, as we just read in 1 John chapter 3 and really all throughout the scriptures, we have a completely different story, don't we? What did that say in 1 John 3:16? By this we know love, that he speaking of God in Christ laid down his life for us. Here you have the actual radical nature of what was central to the Christian faith. In the Roman world, you sacrificed for the gods. In the Roman world, you laid down yourself and your desires for the gods. And and at the center point of the Christian faith is the God who laid down himself for his people. This language of by this we know love is that same Greek word that we heard Julian mention a little bit ago, agape. If you've spent any time around the church at some point, you've heard somebody talk about all the different types of Greek love. In our English language, we have one word, and we use it for Mother's Day, we use it for pizza, we use it for Panda Express, we use it for all sorts of things. In the Greek language, there was a a multitude of words for different kinds of love because they understood those were different things. And so you had uh, storge, which would be kind of the um, family love, you had Uh, Eros, which would be the romantic kind of love. You had philia, which was that uh, kind of brotherhood, friendly love. You had uh, felicia, which was the self-love. You had all these different kinds of loves that were categorized, and this agape love became the primary framework that Christians used to talk about. Agape love being the kind of love that was used to describe the tight-knit, not just family, but mother-to-her-children kind of relationship, a self-giving love a love that was based on sacrifice for the benefit of the other. You could describe agape as a, what, what John does in chapter 3, what we just read, a voluntary laying down of oneself for the benefit of the other. This is the center point of the Christian faith, is agape. To will the good of another at the expense of myself. And an agape love does not exist simply in your emotions. It does not exist simply in your mind. It exists, as he says in verse 18, in deed and in truth. It exists in the world. It is a a evidenced, embodied kind of love that doesn't sit within your mind or your heart, but moves out into the world. And what John says in his writings here is this is the very sort of love that exists in the gospel of the Christian faith. This is the very sort of love that we see represented in Jesus. It's not a love that sits at a distance, not a love that simply just is okay with having warm, bubbly feelings in our heart or content to write a card once a year to display how grateful we are. A love that sits and emerges with an embodied kind of love, a self-giving sort of love. As the Apostle Paul would describe this in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, you'll see this behind me. Where Paul writes, for you know the grace of our, the self, the giving of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by, uh, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do you see the development of what Paul, what First John is getting here? At the center of the Christian faith is not a you giving something for God, but God has given himself for you. A self-imposed poverty for the sake of others is at the very heart of the Christian faith. Agape, expressed in grace, uh, the the Greek word for grace, and this is a whole other thing here, is, is gift. The gift, the giving of God is at the heart of the Christian faith. And so this, this language here of 2 Corinthians 8, notice this, is the whole point of 2 Corinthians 8, of the whole story here, is you and I, regardless of if you were to pull up your bank account right now, regardless if you were to quote to me how much uh, your house costs or your rental is, you know, is on a monthly basis, regardless of your story and what you have or do not have, the blanket statement over humanity is that of poverty. Which is not the absence of some kind of material spiritual blessings. It is a powerlessness in your life. I do not care how much you have. I do not care how much you've brought. John says, Paul says, the scriptures say, you are powerless in the midst of what you desperately need in this life. And you cannot reach it for yourself. This then becomes the basis of the good news of the gospel. is in the midst of yours and my poverty... The message of the gospel is that Jesus, king of life, laid down his life, taking on your death so that you might have life. Jesus, the the righteous son of God, laid down his righteousness, took on our shame and our sin so that you might be righteous and put right. Jesus took your shame and and, and impoverished himself by bearing that and giving you the riches of his honor. Your fear for his safety. Your powerlessness for his power. This is at the very heart of the Christian gospel. And I'm going to keep saying that because this, I don't want to get ahead of myself, is the very basis of where we're going. And what was the basis of the church as a promiscuous, generosity people? You see, this is... The, 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 the soil through which the church grew is this story that regardless of who you are or who you aren't, what you have or what you don't, that you stand as a beloved recipient of the grace of God. That regardless of what you've been through, regardless of what's been done to you or what powerlessness you feel or illusions of power you have, that God in Christ has emptied himself out for the sake of bringing you home. And now what this does then, the self-imposed poverty of God, means that people shaped and won by this now become a people that have that same sort of scandalous generosity, promiscuous generosity at the very heart of their nature. And so where does promiscuous generosity come from? It, it, is based in this, it is based in the gospel itself. Charity in the Christian movement is not something that sounds nice. It is not something that would be a good add-on to the Christian faith. It's not a way of, of, of motivating evangelism as we'll give people our money and our concern and our care so that we can preach the gospel to them. It emerges out of the very heart of who we are as the new humanity, out of being the image of Christ, is what Paul says, of being a renewed image of God. This is who you are if you identify as a Christian. And this is why in 1 John 4.20 it says, If anyone says, I love God, but hates or is apathetic to his brother or sister, they are a liar. They have not received the love of God. They have not experienced truly the agape of God. Because if you have, that would be overflowing into a love for those around you. The grace of God and the selfishness of self, they cannot exist in the same person. The grace of God breaks that down. And I feel like I am, this writing on the wall, speaking to a community of those of us shaped and living within the West Side. Your whole life is predicated and my whole life is built around self, around personalization, around everything being for you and around you and easy for you. And this is why generosity becomes so difficult for us. The self-giving love that we are called to, that, that even you know, speaking back to a moment ago with Mother's Day, that kind of self-giving love of pouring ourselves out is anathema. It is cursed in the city of Los Angeles, specifically for those on the west side. And yet the church living into this 2,000 years ago, this is how they turned the world over. This kind of promiscuous generosity that starts giving and giving over and again to others... As 1 John 4.19 says, we love, we agape because he first loved us. We are generous because he was first gracious to us. And so this motivates then the second basis for the promiscuous generosity of the early church. Is the self-giving love of God is not something that was given to you as an individual. The agape, that self-giving love, wasn't just so that you could sit idly by and be fine and and go about your life with a, you know, get into heaven free card when you die. The self-giving love of God created a people. What we talked about last week, a new family identity that comes with new family responsibilities. This is represented in First John, we read a moment ago, this repeated language of brothers and brother, brothers and sisters, Adelphoi in Greek, brothers and sisters, little children there at the end. The, the gospel of Jesus, the love of God doesn't just make you be, you know, I'm a happy little Christian on my own. It unites a people with new responsibilities of love for one another, where we are to love one another as Christ loved us. And so this is where the great commandment is based, where Jesus says, what is the greatest commandment? It is to love God with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is based in John's gospel where Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. We love God in the way that we love one another. And as we love one another with the sort of self-giving love that was represented and seen in Jesus, we begin to replay the gospel story as a community. And so this promiscuous generosity then overflows to being not just within the community and those around us, but then out into our city and to the rest of the world. It extends to the family of humanity. Galatians chapter 6 says, you'll see right behind me, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are to the household of faith. There's this unified vision of that promiscuous generosity that focused on the familyhood of Christians, the new identity of brothers and sisters, but overflowed into the family of humanity. This became the baseline of early church writings in the new church for all evidence of any kind of individual rights that just because you're a human, you have dignity and rights. They're not predicated on your ethnicity or your nationality or who you are. That you being human have dignity and rights and value to be cared for and attended to. This is what the early church was built upon. The promiscuous generosity of the early church goes back to page one of the Bible, but really all of the scriptures, that every single human being is an image of God, worth of dignity and value and respect and honor. And so if Christ became poor so that I might become rich, even if Jesus did this while I was still in my sin, then the implications are that that kind of love now at work within me means that I'm overflowing with generosity to all image bearers, even my enemies, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. So what historians call the promiscuous generosity of the early church, it's the ethics of Easter, as I, we keep coming back to. This was not some concocted plan of, you know, we should, this is be a really nice thing. to. This was the natural walking out of what it means that Jesus got up from the dead. What the cross means for our world is that the way that God is changing this world is through self-giving love. And for the early church, they were a people who became like the God they beheld. They became the God that they worshipped. They were shaped by that self-giving love. And so they moved in their cities, lifting up and empowering, uniting and dignifying every image-bearer they came into contact with. Not out of their surplus, but out of sacrifice. If there is one thing that that I've been... chewing on all week is our predisposition within the church and outside of the church for generosity to be largely motivated out of surplus, that I've got enough to do here or a little bit left over this month, and so out of this I give. The very heart of the Christian faith is a self-imposed poverty for the sake of others. That is language of sacrifice, not surplus. Jesus was not content to meet all of his needs and then come care for you. He emptied himself out, saying no to himself to say yes to you. And, and for us, a little more affluent within the West Side, for most of you here, what you are content to do is to say yes to everything and then say yes to generosity if you're able to say to yes to everything else that you want to do. The calling of the Christian gospel is sacrificial of me choosing to say no so I can say yes to generosity, me choosing to say no to all of the little accoutrements of the West Side so I can say yes to what actually matters, other image bearers in my midst, in my city, So what kind of community did this make? What kind of churches did this make? Here's a flyover over the New Testament for you and into the early church. In Acts chapter 4, right after Pentecost, you find the early churches were counted as being a community that started selling their possessions and land so they could care for and give to those in their community that had need. In fact, in Acts 4, it actually said that because of this, there was no one in the early church that had any need. As soon as need came up, people were selling what they had so they could meet the needs of those around them. In Acts chapter 6, there's a whole class of church leadership called deacons that are raised up specifically for the cause of making sure that people's needs were being met within the community. In the letter of 1 Timothy, we get a hint that the early church carried a roster for widows. That was language for both of those who had had uh, widows in Greek language was used of talking about both um, those who um, had their, their husbands die, but then also single mothers That was the same line. Widows would be for anybody in the category where there potentially, ideally, should be a husband, but there isn't. He's left or he's died. And so they actually had a roster in the early church specifically for widows to ensure that nobody was being forgotten or left behind. And then in 2 Corinthians, what we read from a minute ago, where Paul pulls on that, don't you remember that Jesus, you know, he went into poverty so that you might become rich. That's filled in around Paul calling for the church in Corinth to raise money to send to the church in Jerusalem amidst a famine, to take up the need and cause, to say no to what you guys are doing so you can say yes to the church in Jerusalem meeting their needs. If you move outside of the New Testament, this is where it gets fun because most of us don't know about these stories. In the second century, there was a plague that wiped through the Roman Empire, killing about a quarter of the population. And what you think might have killed Christianity in that moment actually led to its spread as Christians stayed in their cities and cared for the sick in their cities. And at that time, pastors began to bring a theology of suffering that didn't say that the plague was the capricious gods being angry with Rome, but evidence of a broken world in rebellion to God. They brought a a framework for understanding a pandemic, and they brought care in the midst of it at cost to themselves. Sociologist and religious demographer uh, Rodney Stark, he has done historical studies to find that in the churches or the cities of Rome that had large Christian communities, they had a uh, half of the the death toll of, of other Roman cities, that their staying and praying and caring led to less people dying in the midst of a plague. As you continue to move in the early church, uh, you remember a moment ago, Julian mentioned that we need to build hospitals in that quote. There's that little line about, let us build hospitals. Why is he talking about that? Right at the time that Julian took power, Basil of Caesarea, he founded the first historical hospital. In the day and age, you would have doctors and stuff, but they were all private. You'd be paying for them. And The first actual hospital that was open to caring for the the public at, at no cost to what they needed was founded by Christians and it was copied by Julian was saying look what the christians are doing down in Caesarea. we've got to get in on this they're they're they're, they're killing it at caring for others clement and origen in alexandria in egypt they started the free the first historical free public school Caring for those in their city, where normally it was private schooling, tutors that you would have hired for your children. The first free public schools that taught philosophy, astronomy, physics, math, and literacy. This, was the, this is what the early church is up to, why Julian's freaking out. This radical revolution of generosity that shook the Roman world as they embodied the grace of God by their generosity and care for others. You see, this king of grace in Jesus is what spawned a kingdom of generosity that shook the world. And Julian's folly, back to the beginning of where we were a moment ago, was to think that he could divide what the gospel united. To think that he could get the generosity, the the ethics of Easter without the king of Easter. And, And this is why it didn't surmount to much. His reign was only two years long. But I would say the same thing we need to be aware of today within our culture, within our moment, is we have what uh, Mark Sayers, he's a pastor and kind of cultural commentator from Australia, what he's reflected on is that what we want is uh, the kingdom without the king, in his words. Way of saying exactly what Julian is getting at. We want the ethics, the generosity, the care for the poor and the needy in our culture, but we don't want the king, uh, we don't want Jesus, we don't want resurrection message with it. And what this then leads to, though, is that because we become what we worship, we need something to worship. We need some king that we orient our lives around. And in the absence of Jesus, our generosity is largely shaped around partisan idolatry. We look for some kind of royal figure who's going to guide us into who to care for and how. And the problem with that partisan idolatry, that political idolatry, is it always and every time leads to hypocrisy and contradictions and care. We care for them, but not for them. Well, why? Well, because this is where we lean. We care for these people, but not for these people. Well, why? Hypocrisy abounds. Because there isn't a framework for image of God which dignifies all. And so we can care for the poor, but not for the unborn. More on that in a couple of weeks. We care for the unborn, but not for the poor. We care for these people. the, The hypocrisy, the image of God in the reign of Jesus unifies these in a way that we say no to partisan politics. This is why I'm leaning more and more Anabaptist, which is a Christian tradition that says Christians shouldn't vote, shouldn't hold public office, shouldn't be involved in any of it. Because I'm, I'm, all I see is idolatry that's ripping the church apart instead of caring for their neighbors in a consistent matter. Happy Mother's Day. Aaron's like, what? Is, uh, one of our, of course, it's an awful Mother's Day in our house because one of our little ones is sick uh, with Arlo. Erin's not here, so she's like, I want you to send me the set list, and then I'll listen to the podcast this afternoon, and I'll take a nap. And I'm like, awesome. She's like, what are you going to preach today? I'm like, I don't want to talk about it right now. I'm not going to ruin Mother's Day. What the world needed in the early church and what it needs now is a community of disciples of Jesus who unify image of God and the scandalous grace of God in, in a unifying portrait and picture that doesn't play games based off of what, how Julian wants to divide things up, that doesn't play games with the left or right, but holds them together. And I don't mean that we go independent. And what I do mean is that at some level, we need to become unbelievers in what the state can actually do. Because what we are attentive focus ought to be on is, yes, vote, yes, use your voice, I mean, I guess, I might be Anabaptist, I don't know yet. <laughs> But the problem is, is so often we get caught up in the political partisan game, which we then divide and we fall into contradictions and hypocrisy, and we place all of our attention for generosity and care into the state while we walk by and drive by the, the, those that have deep need in our neighborhoods. We become so focused over here that we negate where we can actually have like eternal and lifelong impact in someone else. By becoming distracted by, well, I got to tweet this, and I got to be mad about this, and we got to vote, got to use our voice, we got to go over here, and there are people that you walk by on a daily basis that LA has predispositioned to you to not even see anymore. It happens to me. You you pull up at the stoplight and you look, you're just looking the other way. And we, why? And then it, the, the, the joke of that is that you do that while you're looking at your phone and you're getting mad on Twitter about somebody's. Supreme Court. Like, this is what's going on within our city, and we're we're missing it drastically. The task of the church, both then and today, is to model an actual embodied generosity that is bound up in the grace of God, that does not see people as projects, but exalts and dignifies and cares for them as God does and speaks that dignity over them to the rest of the world where we're in partisan politics wants to split up who is human and who has those rights, the church continues to stand and say, they do. And some of you lean left and you think I'm talking about one thing, some of you lean right and you think I'm talking about something else. Yes and amen to both. That's the joke of it. Now here's the thing, I say how, okay, Ryan, I'm in on it, let's go, let's let's lean into this kind of generosity. The the, the, the homelessness epidemic within our city is is overwhelming, and and even the fact that so many of these movements in the early church, they now belong to the state, even though they've got Saint so-and-so's name on the building. So what and how? The early church, with the odds stacked against them? Realize the importance of localized work, of neighborhood work, of looking at who's around me and how do I as an embodied person, off of it. The, when you read chapter, uh, Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul gives a sermon. And he talks about how God in his sovereignty has dictated where people particularly live so that they might grasp out and find him. And the whole point being that, that God has sovereignly, whatever you think of that word, God has set you in your neighborhood, in your apartment, in your workplace for the sake of you caring for, meeting, and displaying, and preaching new creation to those around you. And, and so the calling for the local church was understanding that as they said, who am I to care for? Who is my neighbor? They opened up the front door, and they looked out and went, Them. And and the calling then would be to to start there with that localized vision. And to, to, Ben Akinbola put it this way this week, to dream big, pray big, and start small. To have huge dreams and expectations, looking at what the church did over 300 years. Yes, it took 300 years, but look at what they were able to do. So dream big and pray fervently and just start with walking out your front door and seeing the dignity and image of God in your neighbor. Just start there and to begin to take smaller steps and smaller steps that snowball in your neighborhood, and your community, where you can actually have a lasting impact for new creation, not by getting distracted by a global vision of renewal, but a neighborhood one. Because God has sovereignly placed you in your neighborhood for that purpose. And the more that Christians get that, we'll quit getting distracted by some kind of nationalistic, globalistic vision for renewal because that's not how this works. The incarnation demands it. I'm getting sidetracked. <laughs> so as I close, just five small steps as we close out today. Five, five things you'll see behind me. The first, for all of us here, myself included, and it's been all week, is repentance. I, I, looking around the room and knowing the makeup of most of us on the west side Basil of Caesarea, who started the first hospital, talked about him a moment ago, you know how he was able to do that, was there in Caesarea, it was an incredibly affluent community that also had a a division of of high high, uh, affluence, but then also poor and need, those with deep needs. And so what Basil of Caesarea regularly did is in his gatherings that had mixed communities, he would spend an entire Sunday preaching just to the rich in his community, calling for them to see those around them with great need and to step in as the people of God. If you were to summarize many of his sermons, he called for them to repent of their greed and materialism, to avoid luxury, to take on simplicity, and to steward their resources to assist the less fortunate. This first step, though, is repenting of your materialism and your greed, repenting of your absence of seeing the image of God in others. And repentance is a big word. What I'm not talking about is you whipping yourself. And It's, it's simply a turn for you to say, Sunday, on Mother's Day, May 8th, I, I was walking in one way of self-seeking and based in light of the generosity of God, I decided that I'm going to start walking in the way of Jesus, one of simplicity and contentment and care for others. Mm-hmm. So the first step would be, one small step is repentance. The second small step would be community both in giving to the church and giving as the church. And what I mean by that is, as Isaac talked about a moment ago, when you give to the church community, you not only help support the the local ministry and work of our church, but there's an overflow of that, that we give not as a surplus, but as a sacrifice specifically to other ministries and nonprofits on the West side, like Chrysalis and Claris. You're going to hear more about both of them in coming weeks. And so that's a first giving to the church, but more than that is leaning into what I mean by giving as the church. Uh, Jeremy Meginson, as well as a handful of others, uh, lead the kind of care team on our church. But the main point of the care team is not that they do the caring, but they lead our community in doing that with one another. And so this is one of the ways of giving as the churches. I, I would prompt you guys, if you would regularly reach out, you can just come to Jer, or you're, if you're in a neighborhood dinner, your regional ministry leader, is I want, I want to help, how can I help? What's going on right now? How can I, what needs are there? How can I come alongside and care for those in our community? If you're wanting to get connected, that's our neighborhood dinners are the, the, the threshold point for all of that care. And so giving as the community to one another is how we display this. My prayer, connected to last week's teaching, was that evangelism in our neighborhoods would actually begin to erupt where our care ministry would begin to move beyond just uh, meal trains and cares for babies, but us actually having a community where we actually, my prayer is that we'd have to have a roster for widows in our church because because we have that deep need of care, like that we've got to grow a deacon team to be able to care for the people in our church. I love every single one of you. The church, we live on the west side and there's a deep movement of work that we can do where this kind of place becomes one of, of care for those within our community as they find Jesus and they find a family that cares for them. Some of this can be overwhelming and so the next step would be education of learning what does it mean to care and how can we best care for those in our city and in our community. Scott Bomarito Uh, He's basically um, Tom Selleck. Um, He's got a really good mustache. Um, So uh, just to to briefly kind of like uh, uh, celebrate Scott. Uh, So Scott uh, joined our church about a year and a half ago. Yeah. And Scott's awesome. And so we've been talking over and over again about how do we develop uh, some, some elements of poverty alleviation training within our community to help us know how to do this. Uh, because as we move, we need both nonprofits, but we also need individuals who are equipped to train and care for those in their neighborhoods, and it can become overwhelming how to do that, and so uh, this is like Scott's like pet project, or given to him by the Holy Spirit, whichever one you want to take, um, where he's gone to school in uh, local economic development. Poverty alleviation is his thing, and so Over the next couple of months, he's going to do a little book club and, like, training group where if you want to go, I want to learn just how to, the the basics of poverty alleviation and how to, how to dignify and raise up those in my neighborhood. Scott's going to be right here at the end of the gathering, and he's going to be collecting names and contact information for you to jump in and do that. And so just look for the guy with the mustache, and you'll find him. Okay, education, prayer. And this is our practice for the week at collectivechurch.com slash current series. How should I, what's the first step? is I want you to literally take a step in your neighborhood, a few steps. This week, you'll see it on our current series page, I want you to go on what's called a prayer walk. If you've never done that before, it's kind of complex. You walk while you're praying. (laughs) And uh, so here, literally what I want you to do this week is either in your neighborhood where you live or around your office or maybe with your discipleship group where you meet, somewhere nearby where you meet, you literally go walk and you pray and you ask God, give me your eyes to see my neighborhood like you do. Give me your ears to hear it like you do. Help me to see the needs of my neighborhood and help me begin to, God, would your spirit prompt me in how I can begin to step out and meet those needs? You can set a timer for seven minutes and you start walking and the seven minute timer comes back. You walk back 15 minutes, you did it. Set one for 15, and you go for 30. Just walk around your neighborhood and begin to pray on earth as it is in heaven. God, help me to see Right here, on earth as it is in heaven, what is missing in that formula, and how can I step into that? What does it look like for your will to be done? What does it look like for your kingdom to come in my neighborhood? And then to, and to truly open your eyes for the things that maybe you drive right past very regularly. So that's your practice. You can find out more about that at current series, slash uh, current series. And then finally, as we close, is to worship. To worship, to worship, to worship. What I said at the beginning is true. You become what you worship. You become what you behold. You are shaped by your salvation. What you look to models you into a new kind of human. And the problem is that our attention is far more focused on, like I said a moment ago, those things which prompt us into selfishness prompt us and drive us into to, to self-care and, and like overly focused on ourselves. And, and what we do each week when we gather, when we pray, when we sing, when we come to the table, is every single week we are giving ourselves an opportunity to once again work deeper into our bones the generosity and the grace of God for that work to become the shaping thing. And so if there is a lack of generosity you feel in your life, then my prompting, my invitation would be, would you look at the table, look what Jesus gave for you, look at how he dignifies you in the midst of what you've done and what's been done to you. When you feel scorned and pushed away, Jesus has brought you near. In the midst of your darkness that you feel, the light that he's brought, the light, this is, this is every single week where I remember who God is, He is the God who has given himself with this agape, this self-giving love for me. And so as I receive that, I not only proclaim and receive the truth of that work, but I also ask, as as I eat and drink, Spirit, would you shape me into a person that looks like Jesus, into a self-giving person? And so that's what we're going to do just now, is we're going to come to the table. We're going to take and remember the self-giving love of Jesus, we're going to sing and work it down into our hearts. And the invitation, the prompting, is that as you move out into your week, that that sort of self-giving love would be the thing that is represented, that you begin to take a couple little steps in that direction. Let's pray.